everyone, thank you for checking out week four's supplemental lecture where we go over chapters four and five. Now this week we talk about chapter four and five, which is verbal and nonverbal communication respectively in class. Before we get started with the content, just a quick reminder of what's going on this week. If you're accessing the supplemental lecture before our class on Thursday, February 8th, we'll be discussing verbal and nonverbal communications, these two chapters during class. There's also kind of a special opportunity for extra credit during the course of this class. And in class, if you're listening to this or watching this before class, you get an extra five points for each musical artist that appears on a slide during the lecture that you identify before anyone else. So there is some extra credit opportunity if you go to class on Thursday. Just keep in mind also Sunday, February 11th, topic check number three. Again, five questions. That's due via D2L at 11.59 p.m., as is reflection essay number two, and that is also due at 11.59 p.m., Reflection essay number one, pardon me, is worth 40 points. So this is your first reflection essay. But really, I think it's fairly straightforward. I want you basically to speak from your own personal experience. Just make sure you revisit the prompts before you submit the essay and make sure that uh, you're checking all the boxes there on the prompts because usually leaving out one or two of the prompts is how people lose a lot of points on an otherwise well-written essay. The other thing I'll note really quickly on the topic checks is, you know, I've seen people take three, four minutes on a topic check and get 60% on it. Take your time. You got 30 minutes. It's open book, open note. So make sure you use your resources for that. Don't leave any points on the table unnecessarily. With that, let's get to the content of today's supplemental lecture. And we begin with chapter four, which is verbal communication. So something I didn't really talk about during class, but just wanted to address very briefly here is regarding language. Language is a system of human communication using a particular form of spoken or written words or other symbols. That's fine. I do want you to know that definition, but what I want you to also know is rules have three different types of rules. You have semantic rules. These are your dictionary definitions of words. For example, if I tell you cake, you know, you're going to obviously picture the semantic definition of cake, which would be the dictionary definition. So something made from usually flour, um, some sort of water, egg, etc., and baked. The syntactic rule has to do with grammar, structure, and punctuation. So in French, for example, you would say the cake blue, whereas in English, you would say the blue cake. So it's just in terms of order of words within a sentence. And then there's the pragmatic version of words, and that's the pragmatic rules. It's interpretation based on context. So when Marie Antoinette, she probably didn't say it, but when she supposedly said, let them eat cake, it made something completely different in terms of meaning versus if you just told a classmate, yeah, go eat some cake. It would mean to maybe celebrate or actually eat the cake, whereas in the case of that possibly apocryphal phrase from Marie Antoinette, it meant something entirely different because, you know, at the time the peasants didn't have bread. She told them, let them eat cake. It was kind of a slap in the face a little bit. So we have semantic, syntactic, and pragmatic rules. But language also has a number of different functions. It's got instrumental and regulatory functions, so it kind of dictates what we do. 
and how we go about our daily lives. Words are used and language is used in terms of rules and regulations and guidelines. There's also interactional and imaginative functions. This is more what we talk about during the course of this class as far as interpersonal relationships are concerned. There are personal functions. There are ritual functions. So words serve as part of a ritual of a community or of a culture. There are heuristic and representational functions and then cultural functions, which can sometimes overlap with those ritual functions that I talked about. So I'm not going to ask you examples of any of these on the quiz, but I do want you to know that these functions of language and these different functions of language exist. These are the different ways in which we use words, we use language to not only convey concepts, but also we use them in ways beyond just that dictionary meaning of things. All right, so one quick thing I will point out regarding this slide is if you're watching the slideshow in the video format, there's an artist called Frightened Rabbit here on the screen, on the functions of language screen. And I want you to know this for the topic check coming up on Sunday, or hopefully you do it before Sunday. So if you're listening to the podcast version, the answer to the question, you'll know it when you get there, is Frightened Rabbit. That's the answer to the question on the quiz. All right, or on the topic check, I should say. Uh, let's talk very briefly about the power of words. Obviously, language, we've talked about this, can impact the emotions of others in multiple ways. We kind of investigated and explored these concepts during the first discussion board assignment of the semester where you were responding to a hypothetical friend and then also responding, picking up on something that was well-meaning in the first text to you that escalated the situation a little bit. And so we know that language can impact the emotions of others, positive and negative ways, but there are other ways too, just to watch out for in terms of using language. Obviously there's sexism, racism, those things go without saying, they can be harmful. Biases, sometimes unconscious biases can also be harmful. But one of the things I did wanna focus on as far as this slide is concerned is in-group and out-group language. So when you're using in-group language, this is something akin to maybe an inside joke or an inside reference or a word means something similar to you and your friends than it might to someone outside the group. Now, sometimes this can be an effective tool for communicating within your group, but sometimes it can also be a tool that's used to exclude others from the group. For example, if you reference an inside joke around someone outside of the group, that person outside the group gets the hint that they're not part of the joke and they might in fact be the uh, butt of the joke, if you will. And so they are definitely part of the outgroup. This happens as well among people who speak different primary languages. I've been in many situations where I've been around people who maybe don't speak English. I, I unfortunately don't speak any other language. And so sometimes you have that creating in-groups and out-groups just out of straight-up necessity. They don't understand English. I don't understand the language that they're speaking. But it can also be used in an exclusionary construct. So, for example, if I'm around Swedish people that also speak English, but if they want to talk about me, 
or if they want to talk about something that's sensitive, they want to talk about something they don't want me to know about, they can speak in Swedish and I don't have any idea what they're saying. It's, it would be the same thing as if I knew multiple languages and just switched to a different language to talk to someone about something where I didn't want people to necessarily overhear. Now, sometimes there is a concrete purpose to this. For example, there are certain terms and words in Swedish that we don't have words for in English, so it can be easier to explain certain things. For example, the term spets gets used a lot in Swedish when you're talking about sports. We don't really have an English equivalent for that. The nearest thing we would use is top person, and it doesn't really mean what it sounds like it means. So there are language functions in terms of using different languages and different sets of languages that serve a purpose that is not meant to exclude or not meant to create in-group and out-group. But many times we do find ways as humans to use languages to kind of create this in-group, out-group dynamic. One last note on verbal communication is that vocabulary, at least according to the book, is a predictor of one's social status, education, and profession. Now, this doesn't mean, and I don't want you to go forward thinking like, well, if that's the case, I've got to use all these fancy words all the time. I've got to prove to everyone that's out there, prove in a job interview or something like that, that I have this enormous vocabulary. Quite the opposite, actually. If you go around using 25-cent words everywhere, people might think you're uppity. They might think you're stuck up a little bit. They might think you're pretentious. And so really what I want you to focus on is a couple of different things here that is otherwise suggested by the book. One is language awareness. This is your ability to be mindful and sensitive to all forms and functions of language. So this is, again kind of a construct that we looked at a little bit in that first discussion board post where we looked at those text messages and said, okay, well, if I'm posting a reply to this, I'm supposed to post a reply as though maybe I'm offended or I need to escalate the circumstance. What can I latch on to? And I think that's important because as we're sending text messages, as we're talking to friends, we need to be mindful of the fact that our language sometimes can unintentionally hurt or cause harm or mean something that we're not meaning for it to mean. It's impossible to not accidentally from time to time uh, maybe offend someone or take someone aback or any of those things. But it's important to know why that person might be taken aback by certain language that you use or might take umbrage with certain language that you use. This is called language awareness. So being mindful, being sensitive to this fact helps to develop that empathy, but it also helps us to be a little bit better surrounding our word choice. So this comes back to that vocabulary, right? If you're using these stuffy, long words, if you're using words that don't get used in everyday conversation, but you're using them in everyday conversation, again, people are going to think that you're stuck up or you're a little bit snobbish. And so that awareness and then language adaptation as well kind of builds into your decision to use certain vocabulary words at certain other times. So language adaptation is the ability to alter your linguistic choices in a communicatively competent manner. Basically just saying you're using words, phrases, language, etc. as one would use it in that construct to most effectively communicate 
your idea. So if you're just making up words or using these long words, you're not effectively communicating in that case. So instead of using maybe forlorn, although I think most people know what the word forlorn means, you might just use the term sad instead. All right, so let's move on to nonverbal communication. So just like verbal communication has all these different functions, there are six functions of nonverbal communication as well. The first is complementing. So this is nonverbal communication, reinforcing verbal communication. So if you tell someone, for example, I am sad, and you have a sad look on your face, that is going to be complimenting or reinforcing what you're actually saying. Now, there is contradicting as well as a function of nonverbal communication, and this is when nonverbal communication conveys the opposite meaning of what you're actually telling someone. So if you said to someone, I am sad, and you had a big smile on your face, that would be contradicting. And so what people can pick up from contradicting, contradicting nonverbal communication cues is that you might be sarcastic, you might be attempting to be witty at a certain point, you might not actually mean the thing that's coming out of your mouth. But there are times also that we can betray our words with our actual actions or the way in which we deliver things or the vocalics of things, which is something we'll talk about during class on Thursday. So just do be aware that sometimes we can accidentally contradict what's coming out of our mouths with our actions. There's accenting as well. So nonverbal communication can emphasize a word or portion of a message rather than the entirety of the message. I think the most common example of this has to do with, again, vocalics and emphasis on certain words and the phrase, I didn't say he stole the bike. So if you say, I didn't say he stole the bike, that means you're, you're pretty clear that you didn't say he stole the bike. If you say, I didn't say he stole the bike, well, that means you didn't say it, but you might have indicated it or might have written it, conveyed it in some other fashion. If you said, I didn't say he stole the bike, what you actually mean is that, well, I didn't say he stole the bike, but he stole something else. Or I didn't say he stole the bike, maybe you said he borrowed it instead. So depending on the emphasis of that particular phrase there, it means something completely different. So even though the language is the same, that nonverbal communication and particularly the way in which words are emphasized and the way in which our inflection is used will convey something different. So that's the accenting form of nonverbal communication. Moving on to the last three, repeating. Nonverbal communication is basically that which repeats verbal communication but could stand alone. A great example of this is if you said the word stop to someone. Now, you can say the word stop, or you can hold your hand up like this, for those that are watching on video, and hold your hand up in kind of a stopping motion, and that could stand alone, just like a, a traffic cop might hold their hand up to indicate that a particular line of traffic needs to stop, so someone directing traffic there. If you say stop at the same time you hold your hand up, that is a function of repeating nonverbal communication. So that nonverbal communication is basically not only emphasizing, but also repeating what it is you're verbally saying. Regulating is kind of a different function there. So nonverbal communication can help to control the flow of conversation. Sometimes we do this by tailing off at the end of the sentence 
or again, in terms of vocalics, raising our voice a little bit. So if we raise our voice, if we become a little bit more terse, one might think we're in an argument and the other person is going to pick up on that. And that's going to dictate the flow of conversation. It's also going to dictate what is talked about. So that's a form of regulating nonverbal communication. And then there is substituting nonverbal communication. So this is nonverbal communication that has some sort of a uh, verbal transition or translation a little bit. So again, you have certain actions that we can do with our hands, certain actions that we can do with our bodies that can either move conversation along or create a transition or a translation for someone. Maybe indicating that the conversation is over, maybe indicating that you want the conversation to continue, but either way, you're substituting it for another verbal term. And again, the hand raised in terms of telling someone to stop would be a great example of substituting if you didn't indeed say the term stop. So those are the six functions of nonverbal communication. Now the book goes into also the physical appearance of someone. And this is one of those things, you know, again, we cannot not communicate going back to that from the first chapter of the semester. We're always communicating. And sometimes we're communicating when we don't intend to. And there's been a lot of research done regarding physical appearance and the impact of physical appearance on communication. Now, currently, a lot of this research, a lot of the early research at least, is being seen as outdated. And overall, as humans, we've changed the way that we look at physical appearance just slightly. And a great example of this is Sheldon's somatotypes. Here we see on the screen, if you're watching it visually, you have an ectomorph, you have a mesomorph, and you had an endomorph. Now, the ectomorph is tall and thin, the mesomorph is muscular, the endomorph is maybe a little bit more big boned. But Sheldon said basically, we're going to perceive messages from each type of these people, each one of these body types, a little bit differently. Now, I would push back and argue that I think this is an overly simplified way of looking at our physical appearance. But one thing that has remained true throughout the years is that our perceived physical attractiveness in terms of how we perceive others to be physically attractive, it does impact how we perceive others as well. And it impacts what we take from their verbal and nonverbal communication. Physical appearance also impacts one decision, one's decisions about how to interact with other people. And I think this is more exemplified by clothing or by body language than anything. There are a lot of people that are out there that might be wearing certain clothing. I might look at them and say, hey, I, I don't think we have anything in common, so I'm not going to approach them. I'm not going to talk to them. But more to the point, we've talked about body language throughout the course of the semester to this point. If someone has crossed arms or is closed off to me, I'm going to be less likely to engage them in communication than I might engage someone else. So this has to do, I think, a lot with physical appearance. And again, if you see someone that's out in public, uh, they've got maybe curlers in their hair, they're wearing a bathrobe, you think, well, that person just woke up, you know, maybe I'm going to leave them be. We can see that physical appearance having an impact on whether we want to communicate with them. And obviously, in terms of what one might call patterns of cathexis, or in terms of dating or relationships, we're far more likely to approach those in a public setting 
that we deem more physically attractive. And we're going to give them, you know, basically more of our time or more of our ears if we find people more physically attractive than others. Now, that's not to say that you can't communicate at all if you see yourself as physically unattractive, but what it has done is it's led a lot of communication professionals and communication scholars to develop body positivity models. Because as we talked about last week during talking about chapter three with the looking glass self, if you perceive yourself as maybe unattractive or someone that's not open to external communication based on your physical appearance, that's not a positive thing overall. So this body positivity model is mentioned by the book. And look, I'm going to be honest with everyone. You know, I've barely gotten to step two of this. So if you master all five steps, that's great. But it is something that they kind of want us to put out there as far as one of the models of communication. Because again, we do see ourselves how we perceive others see us. And so if we think about ourselves as body negative, maybe that's not going to help our interpersonal communication going forward. So body positivity is an important part of interpersonal communication. The first step in the model is reclaiming one's health, basically just saying, hey, it's defined by physical activity and metabolic health rather than a particular number. The second step is practicing intuitive self-care, which is basically just listening and trusting the needs of your body. The third is cultivating self-love. I'm still very much working on that myself, but it's learning to make life-affirming choices instead of listening to what's called the vulture. So this goes back to chatter, kind of what we were talking about during the last lecture not listening to that spiral of negative thoughts in your head and instead choosing to remain positive about how you perceive that you are perceived. And then number four, declaring your own authentic beauty. This is a process of recognizing and embracing one's combined internal and external qualities and then building community, which is surrounding yourself with like-minded body positive individuals. So these are the five steps in the body positivity model, but to summarize all of this, Ultimately, where you want to be in terms of communication is just feeling positive about yourself in general. Because if you feel negative about yourself and that shows up outwardly in your nonverbal communication, that's going to probably also negatively impact your interpersonal communication and your relationships with others as a result. So I think that's how I would simply summarize that uh, rather than you know going too far into detail on the body positivity model. Just as a reminder, so that finishes up our content for this week. Sunday, February 11th, again, topic check number three is due. Reflection essay number one is due. Those are both due via D2L by 11.59 p.m. Thursday, February 15th, we will have a substitute. Marcy Hero will come in and be teaching the class. She'll be teaching a lecture on culture and context, which comes from chapter six in the book. We'll also have quiz number two at the end of class. Marcy is great. I've known her for a long time. She is an absolute rock star. And so I think you'll have a lot of fun with her while I am in Canada playing floorball. All right, next week, uh, one other thing to note, discussion post number uh, two will be due. First post is due Thursday, just like it was the first go round. Reply post is due Sunday. So make sure you're mindful of that. Make sure you knock those out. Everyone did, for the most part, a pretty good job on your first discussion post. So I want you to kind of bring that mindset and energy into your second discussion post as well. All right, that's it for verbal and nonverbal communication. I appreciate you checking this out and I hope everyone has a great week.